Uh, if you were here last week, you know that we just started the book of First Peter, followed by Second Peter. You know that Peter is writing to an audience that is following Christ, and they're living in uh, provinces of Rome, and there's a problem. They are Christ followers, but they're living in a culture where the flow of current is going in the opposite direction. So their plight is our plight. If we're following Christ today, we're living in a culture that is running towards post-Christian as quickly as humanly possible. And so we're finding that more and more things we've taken for granted or things that we've had as long-standing beliefs are less and less popular, less and less agreed upon, less and less supported, um, and are increasingly sources of great polarization. Their plight is our plight. And so what does Peter do at the very beginning of this letter? He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them who they are because you've got to know who you are. And who you are determines what you'll do. Who you are and what you believe determines how you will live. And so 1 Peter 1.3, he writes this at the very beginning. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So who are we? We are people who are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you know that the next verse talks about an imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance kept by God in heaven for us. So Peter says, don't forget who you are. I realize you look around at culture and see craziness. I realize you look around at culture and things don't make sense anymore and you don't fit in anymore. You feel like you fit out much more than you feel like you fit in. Don't forget who you are. And now Peter begins to transition to explain to his readers what it looks like to orient all of their life, to have all of their life revolve around this truth. That it's critical for them because they like us, are tempted to make our lives revolve around other things. For some of us, it's family. Life revolves around family. And if something's wrong with family, everything's wrong in life. And in order to fix family, or what we think might fix family, will change anything, change jobs, change where we live. Everything's on the table. For some of us, it's work. All of life revolves around work. And so Peter starts with, this is who you are. That has to be central. That has to be first. And now we're transitioning to something to look at, a model, an example, something to aim for. What does Christian conduct look like? What does it look like daily to be people born again to a living hope? So that's what he's going to address today and start of the unfolding of the rest of the book. He's going to unpack this theme. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to read 13 through 25 over the course uh, of this morning. Uh, but the first point from 1 Peter 1.13 is just this. The grace of God leads us to sober living. The grace of God leads us to sober living. When His grace has penetrated our hearts, when His grace has caused us to stop trying to prove ourselves worthy and stop trying to try to earn His favor... When that becomes real and personal and transformational in our lives, it leads us to a great seriousness um, about listening and following. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, Peter says, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The uh, literal construction here of preparing your minds for action more or less says gird up the loins of your mind. So I apologize if that takes you to a strange image. What Peter has in mind is a person wearing a long garment, like an overcoat uh, that resembles a bed sheet, um, and how he might pull up the ends of that outer garment and wrap them around a waist in order to be ready, mobile, uh, battle-ready, game-ready. Today's a big football day. That's the equivalent of the helmet on, the chin strap tight, the shoes tightened, everything tucked in, ready for the game to start. Peter talks about be prepared, prepare your mind. One of the things that I regret that I did in high school was running cross-country. Some of you did that. Kudos to you. Um, it's a relatively simple sport. You have a starting line and a finishing line, and you run as fast as you can between the two. Despite the fact that it is very simple and, and straightforward, a lot of preparation is required before the gun goes off and you start running. And so if you've ran, you know that if you're going to run a longer distance, it takes weeks, uh, months, sometimes in some cases years of distance training to build up stamina so that you can go for a long distance. You also have to run short distances, build strength and speed. And that's all prior to race day. On race day, you have to take into account what you eat, what you wear, uh, I remember after a game eating four Big Macs and they were two for two dollars. So you'll excuse me, that's a great deal that you can't pass up. I think you would agree. But you can't do that before a race. You can't do that before you run a long distance. It's not going to go well. You're going to feel terrible. Um, you have to pay great attention to what you eat, how much water you drink, and things like that. That's all part of being prepared. You have to be prepared in the sense of what you're wearing. So you're wearing uh, tennis shoes that may or may not have spikes on them that weigh five or six ounces. The smallest shorts that anybody has ever worn in the history of the world are for cross-country runners. A very small tank top that weighs about the same as a paper towel. All of this is the preparedness of your body, preparedness of your diet. Uh, there's preparedness for your mind. Uh, even when then you arrive at the course, you go and you, you prepare your mind uh, strategically, right? And, and you a cross-country runner walks sometimes the entire course or will run part of the course in preparation for the race. They want to see where the tricky turns are. They want to see if there's any confusing spots on the course to have that figured out before the race starts. If there's significant uphill or significant downhill or places where footing might not be great, you want to see that in advance so that you can be prepared for it. You're looking for some sort of marker when you're getting a half mile to the finish line, maybe a quarter mile to the finish line, so you can start to prepare for the end all of this goes into being prepared for the gun to go off to run the race well. The Apostle Paul refers to the Christian life as a, as a journey sometimes. He refers to it as a race. 
And he talks about running well to win the race. And so as we think about what it means to prepare our minds, I would suggest to you uh, that many of us spiritually are unprepared for the race. We haven't trained our minds. We haven't trained our diet. We're, it's the equivalent of going into the spiritual race, having eaten four Big Macs, and then wondering why you don't feel good, wondering why it's not going well. We weren't prepared. And so Peter says it starts in your mind. It doesn't start with your behavior. It starts in your mind. How many of you know that the battle with sin starts in our minds? How many of you know that the battle in our marriages and in our relationships starts in our minds? Peter says, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. I think a fair question might be, how do we do that? How do we prepare our minds for action? What, is that, what does that look like? Uh, one of the things that I'd suggest is develop a practice of examining uh, your thoughts, become attentive to what's in our minds. Uh, many of us are convinced that what happens in our minds doesn't matter. As long as we don't say it or as long as we don't act upon it, it doesn't matter. Some of you remember when uh, pirating uh, music and downloading it off the internet first became a thing and, and it was called a victimless crime. Many of us treat what goes on in our minds as a victimless crime. There's no real consequences. And so first is to develop a pattern of examining our thoughts and to come to the clear, clear conclusion that our thoughts matter. Uh, second, we need to train our minds to think like Jesus. And, and Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we do that by renewing our minds. And that happens through the word of God. And so there's this strange thing that happens, it, it seems like, where we ask God to speak, but we ignore what he's already said. There's this strange thing that happens where we, we ask God to speak and we wonder aloud why I can't hear from him. And then we fill our minds with all sorts of competing viewpoints. Uh, voices. We feel all silence with noise and then wonder, why can't I hear from him? We need to train our minds. We need to, third, take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to take every thought captive because we have an enemy who's a liar. And many of us are entrenched in some deeply held false beliefs about who we are because of lies from the enemy. The enemy says, uh, you're no good, just quit, right? But the word of God says that our payment, payment has been made on our behalf to make us righteous, to make us pardoned, so that God looks at us and judicially says, not guilty. The enemy says, you won't be happy without this relationship being just right. You need a new relationship. The enemy says, you won't be happy until this thing happens with your job, until you get that promotion until you get that house, the word of God, we even see Jesus say it, I came that you might have life. I came that your joy might be full. I came that you might have peace without all of those other things. May or may not have those other things, but they're not necessary for joy. The enemy says if people knew your past, they'd want nothing to do with you. If people knew what you thought, if people knew what you did, they would want nothing to do with you. The Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, the plan of God was to send Jesus to make payment for our sins. So he sent Jesus knowing our past, our present, and our future. Girding up our minds includes knowing our purpose. 
one of the things that Jesus said was, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. And as we look at his life, doesn't that all seem to line up of him doing the will of him who sent me? If we don't know our purpose, we're guaranteed to not hit our mark. Uh, I think about running again. We had people on our cross-country team who just did it because their friends were on the team. And then we had people that ran cross-country because they wanted to win the race. And the two did not train the same way. The two did not train the same way over the summer when school was not in session. Your goal, your target, what you're aiming for is going to determine how you train and determine how you prepare. The concern, of course, is that there's this way that we can live that makes us, that causes us to become spiritually complacent. And so uh, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so a question that we have to ask ourselves is, have I set my hope fully on the grace that will be received when Jesus Christ returns? Or have I set my hope in someone or something else? For most of us, it's a someone or a something. It's a circumstance or a possession or it's a person. And so so Peter says, no, no, don't, don't set your hope in a person. Don't set your hope in a spouse to make everything great for you. Don't set your hope in your kids to validate your existence, to validate your role as a, and success as a parent. Don't wait for a boss to validate your work ethic, to give you a promotion and recognize your hidden talents. Don't set your hope in a person. Set your hope fully in the grace that you will receive when Jesus comes again. Don't set your hope in circumstances. Uh, the promotion, uh, the house, your health, finances, your family's finances, relationships. Don't set your hope in circumstances. To set your hope uh, in circumstances and set your hope in other people, it's, it's kind of like playing the lotto, right? It's kind of like playing the lottery where virtually nobody wins. And the problem is, is that even if you do win, you, you kind of lose, right? You know that even if you do win, you kind of lose because rarely does someone win the lotto and then talk about how it's changed their life for the better. Right? Aren't the stories that we're familiar with that we read in the news about how someone won the lotto and then got stabbed back by a roommate? Someone won the lotto and then their family disowned them and they lost everything and, and now they're bankrupt again? Setting our hope full in people and setting our hope in circumstances is kind of like playing the lotto. Nobody wins, and even if you do, you don't really. The second point this morning is that the grace of God in our life leads us to holy living. If we have received the grace of God, the natural response of our heart to seeing him and to seeing his holiness is then to go and to do the same. Let's read verses 14, 15, and 16 of 1 Peter. Verse 14 says this, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. The idea of the holiness of God carries two really uh, distinct aspects. One, that he is morally pure, incorruptible, not bribable. He is infinitely good. He is holy at all times, in all places, in all ways, morally pure. 
The second is that he's not just without sin, but he's without equal. He is set apart. There's no one like him. There is no one above him. There is no one near him. Hopefully the football games this afternoon will be close. They'll be like each other. There's no one. There is nothing like God. He has no equal. Uh, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to get our minds around holiness. And it's kind of like if you have a three or four-year-old that won't eat broccoli and, and you tell a three or four-year-old that won't eat broccoli, eat your broccoli because there's starving children in another country that don't have any food, so eat your broccoli. I don't think it's ever worked, has it? Did anyone raise their hand and say that worked at your home where a three or four-year-old said, that? that's a great point, mom or dad. I've never looked at it that way. And they ate their broccoli. It's never worked at our house. I've tried it many times. Sometimes talking about holiness is just hard for us to get our mind around. It's beyond us. It's right. It's beyond our capacity. He's infinitely holy. Both of those words are really uh, beyond us. So I want to uh, read to you a little bit of 1 Samuel 2 uh, because I think Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 does a decent job of articulating a little bit about what it means to be holy. Hannah, if you're not familiar with her, has prayed to God for a child. God has answered her and given her a child, and this is part of her prayer. This is part of her gratitude, her gratefulness to the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'll just read a couple of these verses, uh, starting in, in verse 1, and it says, And Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I rejoice in your saving. Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. So we have, there is none holy like the Lord. We have his without sin, and there is none beside you. There is without equal. There is no rock like our God. So as, as Hannah has encountered God, as, as Hannah has poured her heart out to the Lord and he, he has met her in this moment of great despair and answered her, she's blown away. There's, there's no one like you. Where could I turn but you? There's no rock like you. There's no one to anchor my life into like you. There's no one who doesn't waver in the storm like you. There is no rock like our God. Verse 3, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. It says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. When we see the holiness of God, when we, when we stand in his presence, when he meets us, there's not this sense that we're worthy. There's not this sense that we deserve to have him listen. There's not this sense that he ought to answer our prayer, that he's supposed to do good things for us. There is this great sense of, I, I, I shouldn't even be able to, to speak in your presence. I, I don't deserve to be heard. She says, let no arrogance come from your mouth. What, what would you have to boast in when you've seen the holiness of God? What have you done that matters or that is significant or that is great when you've seen the greatness of God? Verse 8, she says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. In other words, he is so holy, he sees and he hears and he's attentive to and he responds to the plight of those in need. Not just responsive, but he makes them to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He bestows upon his people more than they could ask or imagine. What he does for us is infinitely beyond what we deserve or what we have earned. And she says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. You know, some of us are, are proud of things that we've done. Some of us, some of you are, are proud. I'm not proud of anything I've built. Some of you are proud of things that you have built. You have things in your front yard, things in your backyard that are awesome. She says, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Like, that's just infinitely cooler than maybe a, a home add-on, right, or a new garage. The pillars of the world are his, and he has set the earth on him. She encounters the holiness of God and sees the bigness of God and the smallness of herself by comparison. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. In other words, he's so holy that he guards the feet of his faithful ones. He protects them. They don't protect themselves. He guards them, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The other side of that coin of holiness is that God can't be in the presence of sin. The other side of that coin of holiness is that God can't not be just and not punish what is evil. So she says, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. So there's these two aspects of his holiness that are described here and described throughout the Bible. His moral purity Right? And his, the fact that he is set apart, he is without equal. Uh, when I think about moral purity, I, I think about just the way that I respond to people over the course of a day. And, and some of you can relate to a word called hangry. Anybody know what that word is familiar with? Okay, some. Um, and there's a bunch of liars in here. Um, uh, but it's a combination, right, of, of hungry and angry, right? And, and it's sort of the outcome of maybe a long day, not having slept well or not eaten enough, right? And so if you're married to someone who gets hangry, you have a sandwich close by at all times, maybe a power bar in your car because that could save your life. This is good. I, I see less elbowing, actually, this service than, than first. That's nice. But my ability to be patient with the kids wanes at the end of the day. My ability to be gentle and tender with McCole and our family wanes at the end of the day. Uh, my thoughtfulness turns less and less towards others and more and more towards myself, right? When I haven't rested, when I haven't eaten, when I'm tired, when it's been the end of a long day. And so we just see in this holiness and his moral purity, uh, we never call on God and he's unrested and tired. We never call upon God and catch him in a bad mood or having a bad day. His holiness informs all of his other attributes. It's just, it's a cool thing to think about God being sovereign, right? Knowing all, having power over all things, and also being holy, so that all that he does is shrouded in holiness. We think about God correcting us at times. Do you think about God correcting you, and do you 
imagine some horrific thing where he's just going to rip everything dear from your life out of your hands? Or do you think about his corrective hand shrouded in holiness such that even his corrective hand is done for his glory and your good with the utmost care and gentleness? All of his attributes are informed and impressed by his holiness. When we think about his not having an equal, uh, there's a text that I love in, I think it's Exodus. It's here somewhere. No, Isaiah, Isaiah 36. If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah 36 with me. I'll just set it up and say that in uh, Isaiah 36, you have this guy, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and you have Hezekiah, king of Judah, and Hezekiah has a small army, and Sennacherib has a big army. Sennacherib is going to win. Hezekiah is going to lose. They both know it. Sennacherib comes to uh, Judah and he calls out and he says, make peace or die. Pretty standard. Uh, Make peace or die. And then he sends his messenger out and the messenger goes to the people and the messenger says, everybody pay attention. The messenger says, listen in, listen in. And he gets everyone's attention and he says, Hezekiah is going to tell you to trust your God. The messenger says, don't do it. All of the other nations that we've conquered have trusted in their gods, and their gods have not been able to do it. Make peace or die. Uh, Isaiah 37, starting in verse 33, records just a snippet of the Lord's response through the prophet Isaiah. He is without equal. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. Okay, so God's saying this isn't going to be a fight. This is not going to be a fair fight. This is going to be quick. Verse 34, by the way that he came in, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 36, and an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When we say that there is no one like him, that he is set apart, that he is without equal, there is no problem too big. There is no opponent, no diagnosis, no enemy, no circumstance, no relationship too big. He is without equal. There is none beside him, no one above him, no one near him. He is both morally pure, without sin, and he is without equal. Peter says, like obedient children, be holy as he is holy. If you go back and you volunteer in the children's ministry, you will give instructions at times, and sometimes they will listen, and sometimes they won't. But you will know very quickly that obedience is about more than just doing what you said. And obedience is more than just obliging and doing what is asked. What we want is joyful obedience from a glad 
heart. And I think David is someone that just captures that so well because we know that many times David doesn't obey. We know that David falls on his face over and over and over. He missteps countless times and it costs him dearly and it costs those that he love, loves dearly. And so, so we can relate to that, right? Uh, listen to David as he describes his delight in the Lord, as he describes his delight in the Lord's words. Love for God precedes love for his word, and the two are connected. Look at how David delights in the Lord. Psalms 119 says this, in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. Not, oh, how I tolerate your law. Oh, how I I will do what you've asked. Oh, how I love your law. Verse 98 Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. In other words, the things that you tell me to do are are good. They are filled with wisdom. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Again, there's this real sense that he delights in the Lord, and because he delights in the Lord, he delights in the things that the Lord says. Verse 104, though through your precepts I get understanding. 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I would suggest that David has seen the holiness of God and therefore stands in awe of who he is, delighting in his father and delighting in the words and the instructions and the commands. If we don't see with a sense of awe his holiness, if it's not something that just grabs us, I would suggest that we haven't truly seen him. Verse, or the third thing this morning, uh, the grace of God leads to fearful living. So the grace of God in our lives causes us to take all that he says very seriously. The grace of God in our lives causes us to pursue holiness, to imitate the example of the Father, to imitate the example of the Son, desiring to please the Lord, right? Been given so much, want to say thank you. Third, the grace of God leads us to fearful living. Let's read 17 through 20 of 1 Peter 1. 17 says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Who needs that stuff? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he, Jesus Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. The fear of God is another one of those just immense and ominous aspects of how we relate to the Lord. Some of you know First John 4.18 that says, uh, perfect love casts out fear, and, and the fear that we see in that verse has to do with fearing at the end judgment that you will be sent to hell, fearing at the end judgment that you will hear from the Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. And so Peter's not writing to those people. Peter's writing to followers of Christ who will be judged for what they've done, judged for how they've stewarded what God's given them to steward. Proverbs 3.12 affirms saying, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, and as a father the son in whom he delights, 
Hebrews 12, 6 says the same thing. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So there's this sense that even though we have judicially been declared not guilty, that our spot in heaven, our eternal inheritance is secure, there's still an ongoing and active judging for the way that we spend our lives, for the way that we steward what he's given us to steward. And so Peter says... There should be a healthy fear because he judges, no surprise, with holiness. He's impartial. He's honest. He can't be bought. He can't be bribed. There's no uh, high-five buddy deal, right? Each will be judged according to what they do. And so Peter says, like, if you get the holiness of God, you've got to see that you don't want to be on the wrong side of that judgment. Um, one pastor describes it in terms saying it's not so much about fearing the Lord with dread, but of loving him so much that we would fear anything, we would fear anything in ourselves that might pull us away from the Lord, where we can't help but run to him. One of the aspects of fearing the Lord means that what he says is up here and what everyone else says is down here. So what culture expects of us is down here. What God says is up here. What a boss might ask me to do is down here. What the Lord says is up here. The pressure that I might put on myself might be down here. What he says is up here. We get a picture of this in Exodus 1. Some of you recall that the Hebrew people are flourishing in Egypt and Pharaoh says, this is not good. This is a national security issue. This is a threat. And so Pharaoh orders the killing of the young babies. And Exodus 1.17 says, but the midwives feared the Lord. And so they ignored the Pharaoh's commands and allowed the babies to live because they feared the Lord rather than man. An aspect of fearing the Lord is what he says is up here. What others say is down here. The person I most want to please, him up here. Everyone else down here. We see that also in the book of Acts. You remember when Peter is taken into prison and he's beaten for preaching and he's released and they say, you can go, you just can't preach. And what do they say? You're going to have to be the judge of us, whether it is right to do what is right in God's sight or right in yours. But for us, we can't stop preaching, right? And, and so if we consider that we're in a culture that is, again, actively running as quickly as human possible, as quickly as humanly possible towards a post-Christian worldview, we are going to increasingly stick out. And so this is just going to be something you should expect to occur, something that you should expect to pop up in your life more and more and more and more and more in every sector of life. Fear the Lord is to put his words up here, culture's expectations, what others say of us, what others ask of us, what others demand of us down here. Verses 18 and 19, Peter reminds them that they have been saved from something that has plagued their families for generations. Uh, to the Gentiles, the Lord saved them out of godlessness, to the Jews, God saved them out of their empty religion, striving to try to prove worthy, striving to try to earn his favor, trying, striving to try to justify themselves. And so Peter looks at his audience and says, you all were a mess before the Lord. He saved you 
both out of the sins of your forefathers as we consider what we've been saved from. Again, it causes us to stand in reverential fear of a holy God who has rescued such unholy people. Verses 22 through 25 remind us that the grace of God leads to love for others. When God's grace has permeated our hearts, it causes us to take seriously the things that he said and the example that he has set. It causes us to want to imitate him in holiness as we are so grateful for this infinite eternal treasure that we've been given. It causes us to stand in pause and in fear of him. Right, as we have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves. For people that have a high view of themselves and a low view of God, you will not see the fear of God in that person's life. Last, when the grace of God has permeated hearts, it necessarily overflows into love for each other. Uh, I want to read from you from Isaiah 40 as we, as we close this morning. Um, We've talked about love before. Some of you maybe think about James 1, where we see pure and undefiled religion as this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, essentially saying the mark of Christian maturity is do you love others well, not how much do you know and how many verses can you quote, although those are good things too, but that the defining mark is that his word is not just in here, but that it's in here. And when it's in here, it flows out in the form of love for others. But I want to read... Isaiah 40, because it is a turning point in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters sort of form this section that essentially pronounce judgment on everything. Everything and everyone is is wicked and defiled. And God says, I I can't stand this. And that judgment is pronounced. And then from 40 on, it talks about the power and the might and the plan of God bring peace. And so chapter 40 is this sort of hinge chapter, the beginning of something new. Uh, And as I read some of these verses, would you just maybe go back in your minds to a time when you have been greatly wounded or offended? Go back into your mind when maybe you've given counsel to someone and they've just ignored it. Maybe you've done something kind or generous for someone and it's been kicked to the curb. Uh, Put yourself there because that is the father with his people after 39 chapters of Isaiah. Um, Consider the way that he relates to his people. Consider the way he relates to us. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. If you put yourself back in that situation where you were deeply hurt, uh, wounded, uh, or offended, did you speak tenderly? Did you have tender thoughts? Was your thought the comfort of the offending party? A holy God says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. I'm wiping the slate clean. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm going to undo all that has been done. All the evil that has been done, I am going to wash over and make new and make holy. In this place that was once a mark of sin and disobedience and dysfunction and brokenness, he says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together and marvel at what he's done, not what the mess 
we've made. Verses 7 and 8 are the verses that Peter quotes here in 1 Peter uh, 22 through 24. And I imagine that his readers, hearing him quote the Old Testament, would go back to this chapter and go, oh, that's right. Look at the love of the Father for his people. Uh, Verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Verse 9, go on up a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Wasn't it a great moment when the Lord said to you, behold your God? when he wipes away their past and says, Behold, your God, I've not abandoned you. I've not quit on you. I know what you deserve. I know everything, and I'm still here. Behold, your God. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see the gentleness here. Describing our father as a shepherd, tenderly, gently, thoughtfully taking care of something that is helpless taking care of something that is defenseless coincidentally we got a couple bummer lambs this week and so we made a little barricade uh, in our barn and put some straw down and put suitcases and totes around to kind of make a little containment thing Uh, they had everything they needed right there do you think that they were content the barriers were there for their safety Right to protect them from other things uh, in the barn. Do you think that they were content? Do you think they wanted out? Uh, we were gone on Monday and, and came back, and one of the, the baby lambs had shoved its head into the slats of a bed frame that was in uh, the barn. And so we were not gone for long. We had given it everything it needed. We had put safety measures in place, and it was discontent, and it went and it squirmed out and shoved its head into the slats of a bed frame. It's not a smart animal, right? It's not a smart animal. It needs help. It's defenseless. It's weak. It can't make good decisions. It doesn't make good decisions. And here we see the Lord refer to us as sheep and our father as someone who doesn't come and just condemn sheep for weaseling out through his protective plan or when he's put everything in front of us going the other way rather than condemn what does he do he comes and he gathers the sheep and holds it close right tender lovingly gentle so as we think about the love of god and that when his grace permeates our hearts and lives when it goes from our minds to our hearts it leads us to love others the sense here is just go and, and do for others what the lord has done for you Go and treat others the way that he has treated you. And so it causes us to not walk in on Sundays and say, what can the church do for me? What can people do for me? What will people, how will they love me? It causes us to come in and say, Lord, point me to someone who I can pray with, who I can love well, who I can encourage, who I can invite into my home. It causes us to turn from focusing on ourselves to focusing on others. It causes us to come with a posture to give, not just to receive. Who in your life do you need to gather close? Now trust that they're going to kick and scream when you try to pick them up and hold them close. And so probably shouldn't physically do that. 
Who to your life do you need to gather? Who maybe has gone, who has wandered, who has ignored your counsel, who has rejected your feedback, who has tossed to the curb your kindness and your generosity. You get the sense that our, our Father of perfect holiness, without equal, gathers us as a little fragile lamb and holds us close. So I think the text would just suggest that we go and we do that. We do it when we're here. And that the defining mark of Christian maturity is our love for one another. And so I would just end and leave you with the thought of um, I want us to never underestimate the big things God can do with just a small act of love. And could we commit this week to whatever small act of love the Lord has put on our hearts. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's unchanging. Thank you that you're who you are in spite of who we are. Thank you that you draw us to yourselves even though we run away. Thank you that you hold us close even though sometimes we kick and scream. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything we need for life and faithfulness. Lord, and you just gather us back when we wander away from that. Lord, when something else looks like a shiny new toy, you you gather us back. Thank you that you hold us dear. I pray that we would be people, Lord, who would receive that grace, Lord, and that we would give it to others. Lord, I confess that we hold people's past against them. We hold the things they've said to us, the things they've done to us. We hold those against them. We don't forget. Lord, we are inclined to care well for people who care well for us. We are inclined inclined to love those who reciprocate. And Lord, so I pray that, that you would change our hearts, that we would love because you loved us. Lord, we need you to do that in our hearts and minds. May we prepare our minds for action this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.